0: Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and I am really excited today to have a guest on our interview who is absolutely passionate, has written a nothing but unbelievable great book on one of the most important strategies you can do, if implement in your life if you wanna stay healthy. And the title of his, well, the first of all, our guest is Sim Land, and the title of his book is Metabolic Autophagy. And I did not know of Sim prior to uh, May of this year, or late April. Uh, I was attending the Upgrade Labs event, which was formerly known as the Bulletproof Conference, which is the one from Dave Asprey and one of the best events I was ever at in my life, if not the best event. And I was at uh, Quick. Quicksilver, Chris Shade's company, booth looking at a metabolic or an autophagy activator. And I was asking the exhibitor some questions. And uh, this is the beautiful thing about the Upgrade Labs event and one of the reasons why it's such, one of my favorite events, because I don't even go to the lectures there, because the people attending the event and the exhibitors, you can learn more from them than you can from the lectures. So, Sim is an example of that. I was, asked, I was at the Quicksilver booth and having a discussion about this activator, and the person there didn't really understand it too well, and then the person next to me, Sim, started going on and on about all this in great depth and detail and with a breadth of knowledge that shocked me. So I started talking to him, and we got and it's learned that he had just written this book, Metabolic Autophagy, and, and uh, it really is a phenomenal book. Uh, It's a marvelous companion to Fat for Fuel. In fact, in many ways, it's superior because it goes into, it's sort of a standalone because it goes into great depth and detail of uh, why you should do things and specific protocols and programs and clears up one of the primary confusions most all of us have, and I certainly was guilty of, is that you think autophagy is so good you want to do it all the time. And the only way you can do that is if you minimize protein. And so you're on this low-protein diet, and you're really never uh, activating uh, anabolism or the building of muscle tissue. So Sim does a magnificent job of clearing up that confusion and giving very specific programs on how, how to help make sure main you're maintaining your muscle mass and getting the benefits of autophagy, which is so difficult to do because the biggest question right now is how to cycle through. And I, there is not a better resource that I know of than Sim's book, Metabolic Autophagy, it really does an unbelievable job of helping walk you through the steps. So, with that long introduction, I want to thank you, uh, welcome you, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Well, yeah, thanks for the uh, great introduction, and I'm glad that you liked the book, and also like when we met at the Bulletproof Conference. Then I didn't expect to see you specifically at like the convention area, and we started to talk about uh, the process of autophagy, etc. So, yeah, it was a good connection. And I'm glad to be on the show at the moment.
0: Yeah, so what really impresses me about you, it may not be obvious, uh, but you're only 24 years old. And yet your depth of knowledge on this topic exceeds almost everyone I know. And I'm just shocked at how you've gotten that much knowledge into your 24 year old head. uh, And how you're able to do it. I mean, it's I mean, it's like you're a, a veteran researcher. So So let's start there. How did you acquire all this information and able to write such a magnificent book? I'm just so curious as to how how that process occurred.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I think I've been just very intrinsically curious about uh, the entire process of esophagy. And it kind of originated from uh, when I started doing intermittent fasting back in high school. And uh, up to now, I've been doing it for like seven to eight years. Uh, but at, when I first started, my kind of mo- main goals were to improve body composition and uh, to, you know, lean down better, much more easily. So one of the easiest ways that I've come across was intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. So uh, at first, I d- didn't, you know, delve into the longevity aspect of it. But after a while, it kind of just emerged constantly, this idea of autophagy and stem cells, et cetera, et cetera. And just <laughs> went down the rabbit hole and started to realize that, yeah, it's very critical part of uh, anti-aging as well as just general homeostasis of your cellular functioning and uh, the reason i I actually started writing the book was yeah because there there were like you said a lot of these misconceptions about autophagy and fasting that it's the best thing and you want to have it all the time but but coming from this sort of a um, background of like uh, some doing some amateur bodybuilding et etc I was realizing yeah it doesn't actually make sense that you want to chronically activate autophagy and you don't want to be in this very fasted ketosis state all the time so uh, i wanted to kind of refute some of the misconceptions about especially like protein and mTOR and anabolism etc because those are very very important aspects of healthy aging like having uh, more muscle so uh, when uh, i was doing like You know different articles writing about it then I eventually realized that I have like a bunch of (laughs) content written out so I should like compile it together and uh, make a book out of it and before that I had already written like several books about about, uh, ketosis as well so I'm like doing it as a professional thing (laughs) and uh, writing constantly.
0: Well I'm so glad you did because as I said earlier I just am unaware of a resource that's as comprehensive as yours and for someone who hasn't studied biochemistry deeply, and is not familiar with the molecular biology, you do a magnificent job of really breaking it down to the basics. So, I mean, reading your book is like a, a quick course in, in saving you hundreds of hours of reading the literature. So I'm still curious, though, because it, you don't have any formal scientific degree, yet you're, you've reviewed the literature in depth up to the current literature, and how are you able to comprehend and understand that jargon and compile it and make sense of it? Because most people just get confused when they start mm. reading, the, reading the, the literature on PubMed.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, I think there may be like a few things uh, that uh, contribute to this. I do have like a bachelor's degree in anthropology. But it's like uh, sociocultural anthropology, which isn't <laughs> like biochemistry so,
0: right, or biology.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, so, so in the, uh, at college, I did read like a bunch of papers, so I, I was used to reading scientific literature and uh, doing some research and uh, literature over, overviews, etc. Uh, but when it came to like biochemistry and biology, then yeah, I don't have like background in that, but I just you know, I think every, everything is very possible to learn especially if you like put your nose down to it and or you're like it very much. And uh, just because of doing like a primarily like m- the, my main social media platform is also YouTube. So I make like a lot of videos specifically mm-hmm. about biohacking as a thing like ketogenic dieting, uh, cold thermogenesis, saunas and independent fasting is a big kind of topic that I discussed there. So I was already... Like, I think it's just the aspect of being immersed by it all the time yeah, and yeah. hearing these things and going to these conferences and uh, meeting these people. So it's like what I like, think and like, focus a lot about. So it just comes like eventually it's going to rub off and um, becomes yeah. automatic. Almost.
0: Well, aside from the information that you have, the valuable information on the topic that I'm quite passionate about, uh, you really serve as a, as a magnificent role model for those because most of the people watching this are old enough to be your parents. and yet they haven't acquired a fraction of a fraction of the knowledge that you have in this area so it's a real inspiration if someone like you can do it why can't they do it Mm. so you know it's it's if you're passionate about anything you know just about anything is possible so uh, so if you can do it someone else can do it too so I'm just so intrigued when people like you just come to the prominence of, of the field Really, and, and helping educate others about these really important topics. But let's get now. Let's get into the details of the book. Enough about you, because <laughs> I wanted to frame it because you're really a special character. I mean, just it's so uncommon to encounter people like you. So let's go off on this issue of, of this confusion. is you and I both mentioned, that this it's a talked about a lot. There's a so why don't you just in your why don't you frame the benefits of autophagy from your perspective, and then elaborate on why you think so many of us have work so confused that we should be in autophagy most of the time and hardly and radically reduce and restrict our protein intake and suffer as a result of that
1: mm. yeah well where do i start well i think like um, <laughs> the, the the kind of main. well first of all maybe i'll give a brief overview of what autophagy is so uh, autophagy translates into self-eating and it's this process where your uh, cells are being recycled and uh, converted back into energy. And it's, a, it's, simplistically put, it's just like a recycling mechanism that uh, prevents the accumulation of different kinds of old and worn-out organelles, whether that be broken-down mitochondria, uh, w- whether that be reactive oxygen species, whether that be just you know in, infl- inflammatory cytokines, etc. So autophagy is this just process that your uh, body goes through when it wants to or when it needs to repair and heal itself and it has like quite a critical role in a lot of the uh, diseases uh, that uh, we're so kind of suffered from in today's society and uh, especially like even even conditions like insulin resistance uh, liver disease uh, and those things they can be benefited from from esophagy and uh, even like alzheimer's and uh, heart failure etc they are kind of connected with uh, the the kind of processes of autophagy and deficient autophagy has been shown to be very like causative for those things and promotes these diseases and also when and maybe, it comes maybe to
0: maybe you can go into some of the molecular mechanisms at least briefly because it's not some magical pathway but it activates a lot of different pathways yeah. that produce the benefits you just alluded to
1: yeah for sure like autophagy gets activated when uh, you experience nutrient starvation and energy deprivation. So whenever your body is uh, deficient of these critical nutrients like amino acids, proteins, uh, carbohydrates and glucose and other like carbon and those things uh, in, in the example of plants, then in that case, the, the autophagy process gets activated and you're going to recycle those things. And there are many like different downstream pathways as well that support it like sirtuins, uh, AMPK, proteins, and all of them have been found to be like, the central components of uh, like longevity, when it comes to things like caloric restriction and exercise. So, in the example of autophagy, like when you, when you are, in in like mice for instance, uh, blocking autophagy while being under caloric restriction doesn't promote their lifespan. Whereas they have autophagy activated, then they will live longer when put under caloric restriction. So like a lot of, you know, the caloric restriction is one of the few known ways of promoting lifespan and one of the most effective ways. So actually the, the, the focus shouldn't be on caloric restriction. The focus should be actually on autophagy because if you won't get autophagy, even when you are starving, (laughs) then you won't see those desired benefits. So that's one of the critical components.
0: Yeah. And that's not well known. That's not well appreciated.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like
0: because people, and there's this, whole issue with calorie, restri- calorie restriction which is enormously difficult to do compliance is miserable well under one yeah. percent probably and hardly anyone can do it and, and and so expand on that more and then why it isn't even necessary to go with calorie restriction but just the the derivatives of that which are intermittent fasting in a regular fast
1: yeah like caloric restriction is <laughs> somewhat difficult to pull off and uh, there are like a lot of potential negative side effects such as like malnutrition uh, losing muscle mass, becoming frail, losing bone density, and yeah, just like general lack of well being. And uh, I think the problem is that, you know, most people, when they hear that uh, you can live longer if you eat less, then some, some people may just, you know, experience or they go into this sort of a, um, they go to the depths where they'll just slow down their metabolism that much and they won't even gain the benefits of longevity because they're not activating autophagy. For instance because of eating too frequently and having like the wrong macronutrient ratios in their diet so uh, that's why things like intermittent fasting is literally like a biohacking caloric restriction because you you mimic uh, most of the most of the benefits of caloric restriction and i think that you will activate you will get more more autophagy from intermittent fasting because you're in a fastest state and you don't necessarily need to uh, restrict your calories, or restrict your protein, or uh, become malnourished to gain those benefits. So that's like one of the critical aspects of...
0: uh, I couldn't agree with you more. It is, and it's a source of major, major confusion with most people. They don't understand that, that is a solid foundational fact. And kind of tease out the details there too, because it's so important, I know you do a four hour a daily window. I do a six hour. Um, and how did you come, how did you reach that conclusion? Because it's so foundational and critical to really implementing this program is that it's not, it doesn't have to do with calorie restriction. It has to do with the timing. So how did you, how did you understand or realize that it was the, that window and the longer fast that activated autophagy? I mean, was, was it studies you reviewed or was it was personal experience or both or
1: uh well you know it's the problem is that you will activate autophagy even with like very small or you will inhibit autophagy even with like very small amounts of food so uh, eating like a bagel is going to stop autophagy, and that's, <laughs> wow. that's, 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 that's literally the breakfast of most uh, people in the world, and <laughs> yeah. they're, they're immediately inhibiting the uh, process, the benefits of uh, caloric restriction and the benefits of intermittent fasting if they you know break autophagy immediately in the morning. So the key is, uh, it doesn't matter like the amount of calories because any calories or like any significant amount of calories will interfere with the autophagy process so the key is to maintain this very like close to zero calorie state and that isn't going to raise insulin that isn't going to uh, put you in this anabolic state of being fed and uh, that's where your body's enabled enabled to uh, stay in the autophagy state and,
0: would, would you say that s- some calories are worse than others like the bagel obviously it's sure. going to spike sh- blood sugar and then a- the secondary insulin is going to uh, inhibit AMPK and, and, and you know autophagy is off to the races is gone. So, yeah, yeah. but but how about things like collagen protein? If you're like say in a, a two or three day fast where there's not many branched chain amino acids, so M4 is not stimulated, and mm-hmm. do you think just supplying a little stream of amino acids would be enough to would not be enough to activate uh, or to inhibit autophagy?
1: Yeah, I totally agree that there is definitely a degree of uh, calories that will stop autophagy and there's also like different degrees of autophagy so there's always some form of autophagy happening but uh, like whether or how deep it is and how effective it is depends on like the overall nutrient status of your body at that particular moment so the nutrient status is being constantly monitored by these fuel centers like mTOR which is mechanistic target of rapamycin. The, uh, it's the main growth pathway and the opposite of that is AMPK or AMP activated protein kinase so these two are like the yin and yang of your metabolism they're constantly monitoring uh, what's, what kind of fuel is burning through your bloodstream and based upon that information they're going to decide whether they're going to grow or whether they're going to uh, activate autophagy to recycle themselves so throughout the entire day those fuel sensors are balancing each other out, so you can't co- they can't coexist a lot. So when, whenever you eat the bagel, the bagel is going to raise insulin, and uh, that's gonna it's also gonna activate mTOR, and that's gonna put you into the fed state, which will interfere with autophagy. But at the same time, if you eat something like something more on the lines of like a ketogenic meal, then that's going to have like a much significantly lower anabolic response. And because it doesn't raise insulin and it doesn't have like a bunch of extra amino acids. So there's definitely like a degree uh, with, you know, high amounts of carbs and high amounts of protein being more anabolic and more mTOR stimulating and things like low carb, moderate protein and higher fat, those would be more on the line of uh, AMPK stimulating that that they are able to maintain autophagy uh, for uh, longer or much easily. And of course, the the length of the fast will also have an effect on it. For instance, like if you're coming from uh, like a longer fast, let's say 24 hours or 48 hours, then your AMPK is already much higher and your mTOR is already suppressed a lot more. It's like through through the floor, it's uh, being <laughs> suppressed a lot. So uh, in that case, there's you have like a bigger buffer zone that you can get away with and uh, uh-huh. even... In, in that situation, I, I, like, that's my presumption, is that you're already more AMPK predominant, so you have like more room to play with. And in that case, taking like collagen protein or something that doesn't have the uh, anabolic amino acids that much, in that case, the, the, um, the collagen wouldn't interfere with autophagy that much as long as you stay within like, a certain uh, threshold of calories. Okay. That's, that's a good uh, explanation. I appreciate that. And what do you do personally yourself?
0: Uh, because we, I think I'm going to probably show a picture of you, which is, you know, you are not that impressive. At least I wasn't impressed when I saw you at, at the Upgrade Labs. But when I saw the picture of you without a shirt on, I was, was like blown away. I mean, you're basically a gymnast at the body of a gymnast. And, uh, you know, you really are a, a status. St- a, st- a sterling example of, of applying these principles and what is possible if you do. So I'm wondering, yeah, just, just tell us your specific program. How many days a week are you doing the fasting? How, you know, how many hours and do you, is it a complete fast or is it a partial fast when you've got autophagy activated already and do you slip in a little uh, protein that's not going to activate mTOR mm-hmm. uh, just to preserve your lean muscle mass?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, on a consistent basis, I try to stick to like about 20 hours of fasting a day and consuming my food within like four hours or such. Uh, But on some days I do extend it a little bit and I break the fast sooner, maybe like at the 16 hour or 18 hour mark. Uh, But I do like when I break the fast, then I maintain like... A lower state of anabolism and i'll drink like some bone broth or something it will break the fast but it's not going to like break it completely and i'll still maintain like the semi fast state until i have the rest of the calories mm-hmm. uh, but um, when i'm doing for instance you know the the true is truth is that you you won't be like losing muscle when you are fasting as long as you're in ketosis and you're keto adapted Uh, because the body will become very efficient at uh, using ketones and fat for fuel and it uh, becomes more muscle preserving. But it's at the same time, like if you're trying to like build muscle, then uh, having some, some source of amino acids circulating the bloodstream during exercise or during resistance training will help to uh, maintain more muscle and also helps to recover faster. So for that, like whenever I'm doing like a heavier resistance training workout or like a some doing some gymnast, gymnastic rings or, or something like that, then I'll uh, have like a little bit of uh, protein powder during the workout or some mm-hmm. collagen, pro- collagen protein during the workout to kind of shield the any potential uh, negative side effects of working out in a fast state. Because at, at that point, I don't like care if I stop autophagy because I've been already fasting for like 18 to 20 hours. So having mm-hmm. that protein shake isn't going to be like interfering with my goals and uh, sure. it's going to okay, actually yeah.
0: help. So, there, there is a, there's a lot of confusion about this topic too, and that there are two distinct metabolic pathways you can go on the autophagy, which is catabolism, breakdown, repair of, the, of your tissues, and then anabolism, which is building up where you're activating mTOR. And myself personally, I was uh, afraid of mTOR and really didn't think you should hardly ever activate it. And boy, was I confused on that in your book really helped uh, clear up a lot of that confusion. Um, So, and I think many people are similarly confused. So if you are fasting, so you're doing a two day fast, this is not the time you want to do a serious resistance training workout (laughs) because you're trying to activate anabolism and autophagy at the same time. It's like putting your foot on the brake and the accelerator at the same time. It's not a good idea. Hmm. So why don't you give us your views on that?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, like for instance, when, you're, when anyone is doing like a longer fast, then they all have to keep in mind what's the purpose of the fast. And uh, when, like you can't really build muscle doing these extended fasts. The goal of any of these prolonged fasts is to go into deeper autophagy and uh, essentially promote uh, cellular clearance and uh, like heal yourself. So at that point, I don't, think, I don't see like a point in trying to have a heavy resistance training workout because you, first of all, you don't have the enough energy to actually like reach your personal records or something, and secondly, your body doesn't respond to it as beneficially, and you may potentially just put additional stress on your body. So what what I like to do on these longer fasts is to just uh, do some easier, um, easier like uh, workouts with body weight or uh, resistance bands just to stimulate the muscle and that would just like signal the body that it still needs to preserve more lean tissue uh versus if i were to have like a heavy 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 workout and then not eat anything afterwards either then i'll just you know you know i'll set myself up a failure and uh that's gonna inevitably lead to like more muscle catabolism. so yeah in that case you you shouldn't always you shouldn't like you shouldn't think of trying to catch uh two rabbits at the same time you want to yeah. focus you want to focus on one thing at a time uh which would be like either going deeper into autophagy or uh trying to build lean tissue with uh, the activation of mTOR and that's why like it's shoot that's why it's supposed to be like this cyclical and uh punctuated almost mm-hmm. yeah that you you, that you, you you can't you can't like if you're trying to do both at the same time then you you end up not getting the benefits of either
0: yeah yeah, it's a good point. So let's talk about getting the benefits of anabolism or muscle building. So and the timing, because I think you do a magnificent job in the book too of, of really discussing how you want to really do the, the your heavy resistance training in that fasted state, but at the end of the fasted state, like right before you're going to eat.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like you know, when you are uh, doing heavy heavy workouts, then uh, it's always better to have something after after the workout to uh refeed yourself and promote recovery and promote muscle growth because uh, you know you, you can always work work out in a fast state uh, somewhat somewhat good like there, is, there isn't like there may be like uh, up to like 10 to 15 percent reduction in your absolute maximum performance but you don't need to be at your 100% max all the time to progress in muscle development Mm -hmm. or to progress in uh, strength. So uh, the key is to just uh, do it consistently and send the right signal to your body. And um, on a daily basis or within the 24-hour period, then uh, it's somewhat smarter to backload uh, most of your calories into the post-workout scenario because in that case, you can get away with mild caloric restriction and still be able to build muscle with it. So if you were to be eating all of your calories before the workout and then worked out and then not eat anything after the workout, then uh, it's harder to maintain more muscle in a caloric deficit. You may be able to do it with a, like a caloric surplus, but uh, staying in a caloric surplus all the time isn't going to be good. So even, even, even although uh, fasting is great for autophagy, etc., the overconsumption of calories all the time is still not something that you want to do. And uh, getting away with like mild caloric restriction is uh, quite beneficial. And backloading them into the post-workout scenario is essentially enabling you you still gain the anabolic response from uh, resistance training and uh, still recover adequately, despite having worked out uh, in a fast state and despite, despite eating only within like a few hours of the day. And do, do you think there's value of taking a, uh,
0: a bit of protein bef- right before you work out or during the workout? Because uh, you discussed that in your book also. And I, I, from that discussion, I personally started implementing uh, two raw eggs before my workout. Mm. Uh, yeah. Because the, the raw eggs, it's probably the finest quality protein, food protein that you can get. I mean, it's, it's clearly the one that's assimilated the best and the broadest range of of essential amino acids to help you and and preserve i think some of that muscle uh while you're doing that hard workout right at the end mm-hmm. of your mass
1: yeah i do think that um, for 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 the goal of uh, muscle growth and muscle preservation then it's definitely a good idea to have something uh, some amino acids and some protein in the system. It doesn't have to be like a lot. You probably can get away with even just like ten grams of protein, yeah. and that's gonna be that's gonna be enough. And it's and it won't like spike insulin, and it won't uh, kick you out of a fast state completely. So yeah, definitely like uh, some yeah. eggs. I, in eggs, the past,
0: eggs are fourteen grams, seven grams per egg. So yeah,
1: I think I think that's perfectly fine. Like and uh, you know especially because it's uh, consumed like so close to the workout, then it won't have like uh, any like a significant reduction in the benefits of the fast it's it's not going to negate the benefits of fast and because you combine it with the workout uh, that's also going to help to support the autophagy because exercise does stimulate autophagy as well and is one of the like more more effective ways of doing it uh, compared or next to after fasting
0: yeah so i you know i, I really appreciate you diving deep on this because it's such a critical component and really is a is a good summary of the Central premise of your book with metabolic autophagy. So um, now you also talk about hormesis and actually do a really nice job of uh, defining how that term came to being. You know, I, which I wasn't aware of prior to reading your book, and because uh, it's such a, an important concept to get and understand. You know, basically whatever doesn't kill you is going to make you stronger. But why don't you expand on that and then tell us some of your famous, your your favorite hormetic. Uh, exercises or approaches?
1: Yeah, well, hormesis is also like one of those uh, important, uh, let's say, adaptations that almost every organism on the planet is uh, experiencing. And it's essentially stress adaptation and the ability to endure like environmental stressors, whether that be uh, calorie restriction, uh, starvation, cold, heat, uh, and all these different hormetic like hormetic uh, exposures or hormetic uh, stimuli. Uh, and uh, basically, hormesis also has a lot of the similar kind of effects as autophagy because uh, it, it, it does promote similar pathways like AMPK and, uh, and uh, foxoproteins and sirtuins, or, or much rather those things promote hormesis. <laughs> that would mm. be a much, much better way of putting it. But yeah, like hormesis is stress adaptation, and it makes your body stronger against all these environmental stressors. And uh, my favorite way is probably yeah doing just intermittent fasting because it's like um it's like a mild stressor. It isn't like very intense compared to something like high intensity cardio or something. And it, I th- I think it does like have a like a basal increase in your body's ability to endure any kind of stressor. And those like hormetic stressors they kind of carry over to different different areas of uh stress exposure like if i'm able to fast then i'm i am i have at least noticed that i'm also able to uh endure more cold and endure more heat uh, or like have like just simply more endurance just because of doing some fasting and uh other other ways of activating hormesis is also like probably doing some saunas Mm -hmm. and combining that combining that with a cold like an ice bath or ice plunge those are like one, one of my favorite ways of doing it
0: and I think you're one of the few people who actually embrace the near infrared and make it a point of making it uh, dis- describing the and distinguishing the difference between the near and the far infrared. So I wanted to elaborate
1: on that? Well, I, I'm not that like um, uh, knowledgeable about the wavelengths or the infrared differences between infrared and lo- uh, far infrared, but I do know that compared to like a regular sauna, uh, the uh, infrared saunas they penetrate much deeper. Than the conventional traditional saunas that you see in uh, Finnish, uh, Finnish uh, countries, uh, but I think like I prefer I prefer to do both. Like uh, I re- I like the regular sauna because it feels a lot hotter. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't feel because it is <laughs> it's sometimes
0: a yeah, like, hundred degrees hotter.
1: Yeah, for sure, and uh, it's it's almost feels like a real cardio workout. So I do I have like both, uh, but on let's say on a consistent on a week, weekday, if it's like a Monday or Wednesday, or something, then I'll do like infrared because it's quicker. But on the weekends, I definitely try to get like a regular uh, finished sauna that uh, really kind of has a different uh, uh, like a response.
0: Yeah, the, the, you know, I don't think anyone can answer this question because the essentially the truth is of research hasn't been done. It's my suspicion that near infrared would be the best uh, because it's able to penetrate the deepest and most likely activate what I believe is one of the most important metabolic factors in sauna therapy, which is the heat shock proteins, Mm. which is a real corollary to autophagy. They really stimulate parallel pathways because when heat shock proteins, uh, the primary function is to to refold misfolded proteins in your body and 30% of the proteins you make are misfolded. So there's a real important need for it. (laughs) <laughs> and it not only refolds them, but if it can't refold them properly, then it actually targets them for destruction, very similar to autophagy, where they're essentially ubiquinated and targeted to lysosomes and then ultimately destroyed. So because they don't work. And that's what you want to do if you have yeah. non-functional protein. So Yeah, like uh,
1: the heat heat does uh, stimulate autophagy. And I, I think like I've seen some studies in uh, like the worm C. elegans that in order to gain, gain the benefits of a heat shock protein, you also need autophagy, so to say. So if you don't have autophagy, then you don't get a lot of the benefits of uh, the heat shock proteins. So that's another like example of how these things actually are so codependent of each other and mm-hmm. uh, you can't really dissect them into very specific, uh, you know, yeah, approaches. And,
0: and, and there's a powerful synergy between the two of them too, which is why if you're doing fasting or partial fasting and, is you ideally you want to do them together which is mm. what i typically do in my 18 hour fast and like maybe an hour or two prior to me my breaking that fast i'll do my infrared sauna mm-hmm. so i'm I'm doing it right at the tail end of my long fast you know, so i can yeah. merge those two benefits together
1: yeah yeah I, I i always tend to do uh fasted sauna as well <laughs> because it's yeah. like you, you don't want to have like a bunch of like food in your system when you're like sweating there no, <laughs> well,
0: you're not going to get the same similar amount of benefits. I mean, if you're going to put invest the time, effort and energy, it may as well maximize the benefits.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So, um, what are some of your favorite biohacks?
1: Uh, well, I would say that the sauna and the cold is, is pretty like my top one as well as intermittent fasting, but actual biohacks, I also like the like the red light therapy that's a great uh, great thing that i think is actually can be can be characterized as an actual biohack Uh, but also like just sleep optimization is something that i try to focus a lot on and i use the o-ring to kind of monitor my sleep and i think it's very valuable for giving like feedback about the sleep quality as well as like taking more actionable steps about what, what do I actually do about it, so to say. So like, even just having the ring and giving you, know, the ring giving you this feedback, that itself is like a motivator for me to, okay, I have to take it more seriously or, or I, like, I have like actually incentive to be uh, paying attention to it.
0: So one of the questions Dave Asprey asked his guest at the end of the interview, and this isn't the end, but I'm just curious, is how, at least he's, this is the recent question, is how long do they think they'll live uh, I think if anyone has a chance to successfully live beyond the biological limit, which is believed to be about 120, uh, it would be you. I mean, I don't know anyone at your age who's doing just about everything <laughs> as near biologically ideal as you are. Because in addition to what you've already discussed, I mean, you're paying attention to the basics: the sleep, the quality of the food, the timing of the food, everything. So, have you given it some thought as to how long you you want to or think you'll live?
1: Mm, well, I think it's a difficult question, and I haven't like paid that much attention to it. I, I think. I mean, you're uh, only
0: 24, so it's not something most yeah. 24-year-olds think about.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I think, um, well, I th- I want I want my let's say my work that I do during this lifetime to be carried on as, for as long as possible so to say so that uh, even if i do die i'll have some knowledge behi- left behind me so that the other people could learn from it and uh like kind of carry on the torch so to say so that the kind of worst things would be that all the knowledge that the human society or civilization has gathered so far if all of that would perish away or like you know be- become uh, incinerated in some in some shape or form so i think that that would be the worst situation and the best situation would be just and uh, the information being carried on and i feel like that's the closest anyone can be anyone can reach when it comes to like immortality or something that it doesn't have to be like your biological genes or your bi- biological body that yeah,
0: yeah, right. carries
1: on it, it's it's more like what kind of like value and what kind of um let's these cultural memes you leave behind and what kind of ideas you also leave behind
0: well, no one's t- just talking about being immortal, but we can certainly <laughs> extend our existing biological lifespan yeah. and, and health span, which is perhaps even more important. But I think you stand a good chance of reaching 200 from what you're doing. Uh, and and, and it, obviously you'd have to be some bridge in there because if you're doing everything perfect here. <clears throat> well, no well, one's really, the people who've lived to 120 weren't doing everything perfect. That's the thing. I sure, mean, no one's sure. really done an optimized lifestyle like you have. They just have it. That no one's there people aren't fast and maybe i guess that with the billions of people who live maybe there have been a few and then they died of accidents beforehand or whatever but it's right. uh, it's unlikely because our, our depth and level of understanding of how to optimize biology is continually emerging and this this information hasn't been known up until up until recently
1: mm. yeah yeah i totally agree that we have like access to a lot more information as well as like medical healthcare and technology etc so I feel like it's not that dependent upon me uh, because, you know, there is like a biological limit for the humans, which would, which is said to be around like 120. And uh, if I were, if I were to exceed that, then I would need some kind of other technological intervention, like, uh, you know, uh, some, uh, you know, changing uh, some organs, swap them out for uh, biological uh replacements etc so it doesn't really depend upon that much of me yeah. i just i'll just have to make sure that i live long enough to uh reach <laughs> you
0: will, you will. 24 you will like there's no doubt in my mind uh and i, I don't think you're looking at organ replacements but it's more like ce- uh, cellular reprogramming where mm-hmm. you're able to uh, essentially i mean maybe something like the thymus gland might be might be regenerated but but particularly i'm thinking different genes would be activated continuously like mm-hmm. a nampt or foxo1 or uh some of the sirtuins uh or nampt because it's the rate limited en- enzyme for nad and i wanted to ask you what's your what are your thoughts on nad plus as a as a biological tool
1: uh well yeah i think i'm um, huge kind of fascinated about the research that's coming out with nad and it is like a very important uh, for uh, maintaining the energy homeostasis. Uh, but when it comes to like f- things like actually injecting yourself in, with NAD plus and uh, trying to increase it again, like I think there's it may like have some negative side effects in terms of uh, maintaining the proper like uh, balance of cellular homeostasis because uh, like one of the ways of activating autophagy is actually also uh depleting NAD+, plus so uh like one of the consumers uh of of um of uh, the NAD+ plus molecule is uh parps and sirtuins so uh the those things are also able to you know induce autophagy services so overactivating NAD+ plus i think i just haven't seen like that much kind of research that that it's going to be like the best thing i'll just have to be more Cautious in a sense of looking at what the actual research is coming out in the future.
0: Well, let me give you my take on it. Uh, PARP is certainly a major consumer, probably the biggest consumer for most, but it, it only consumes it when it needs to. It, PARP is a DNA repair enzyme. And if you don't have any DNA breaks, I mean, everyone has um, some. I mean, this is a base thresh, base, baseline level that we all have, but most have excessive because of exposures to oxidative stressors like, like non ionizing radiation, like cell phones. Mm-hmm. So if you're exposed to that, then PARP's activated, and then you're going to consume NAD. But if, it, if you don't have those excessive oxidative stresses and DNA breaks, you're not really going to be activating PARP. I, and okay. I, I don't think that, as far as I know, autophagy doesn't activate PARP specifically. And in fact, autophagy, or you know, typically fasting, will increase NAD levels by about 30%, mm-hmm. which is one of the benefits of fasting. Yeah. Now, here's the other thing. Your concern about taking it might be appropriate for you because I have a good friend who lives not too far from me. He's doing a lot of NAD research and he just published a paper earlier this year that actually measured NAD levels in a wide range of individuals with different ages. And someone your age of 24, NAD is a non-issue. Pretty much mm-hmm. most people until you're 30 or 40, it's, it, it's not an issue. You have more than enough, more than enough. Mm-hmm. So, but when you get to be, for, say your levels are about 40 nanograms per milliliter, and this is in the, the plasma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a plasma, 40, 40 nanograms per milliliter. So, but when you get to be about 80, that 40 turns into under one.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so, you've got to replace that. So, the, 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 the interesting, in fact, I'm just writing a chapter on this now, the interesting component of this is that NAD augmentation therapy probably is highly dependent on how old you are because there's different strategies. So for you, probably a non-issue. I mean, what you mm-hmm. are doing naturally is doing more than you need. You do not have to take any NAD replacement. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit of nice. But here's, <laughs> yeah. a, here's a cool thing. The rate there's, there's a number of different ways to, to make uh, NAD, at least naturally. You can make it from tryptophan, which is, doesn't make a lot. For every milligram of NAD, you need 70 milligrams of tryptophan, and most people aren't taking that many milligrams of tryptophan a day. So, uh, but there's a salvage pathway because when you use it, it turns that NAD breaks down to nicotinamide, and then nicotinamide is then reconverted to NAD through a rate-limiting enzyme called NAMPT. And this is what I wanted. This is really fascinating. I just learned this. Do you know what activates NAMPT and increases it through the roof? you'll be surprised to hear this. Might be not, but you'll be delighted. It might be a better better answer.
1: <laughs> well, what I don't does,
0: know. What, what increases NAMPT? In AMPT?
1: Uh, well, I would say maybe fasting. <laughs> uh,
0: probably does, yeah. That's <laughs> probably how it increases, but also exercise.
1: Oh yeah.
0: Radically increases in AMPT. And the problem with most people when they get older is they stop exercising, as you have well <laughs> seen, and become frail. And so this nicotinamide builds up; it's not converted back to NAD, and nicotinamide inhibits those sirtuins, those important longevity proteins. So it, they just dig themselves into a really deep hole. They don't get all the benefits of sirtuins, and you know they're they're not getting NAD, and then the, you know the death doorstep is not too far away.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's so true that it's 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 all these pathways; they are very context dependent. And they're going to like what's the optimal amount of autophagy or what's the optimal amount of energy plus yeah, it depends upon the age, depends upon the person's medical condition and their physique physical conditions as well so uh, y- in the example of like me, I can get away with probably a little bit more fasting compared to someone who is very old because uh, the older person they're experiencing more anabolic resistance as well, so it's more harder for them to maintain muscle just because of getting older, and for them, they don't need or they shouldn't, like, fast that long, in a sense. They would actually want to benefit from more, like, increased protein intake and definitely, like, maintaining resistance training to uh, promote the anabolism and making sure that you don't lose muscle because sarcopenia is actually one of the worst <laughs> or one of, one of the kind one of, one of the, uh, biggest negative side effects people experience when they get old, that their muscle tissue gets swapped out with fat instead and they become, like, more frail.
0: Okay, folks uh, you've just heard probably the best clinical pearl in his book. So if you, if you're still listening, I want you to stop this video, rewind it back to when he started speaking and listen to it two or three more times, because those are pearls of wisdom that will change your life. And it's not commonly appreciated. This is a lot of confusion on this topic, so i want you to expand on this is specifically with protein levels which you do a really great job in the book because that's it that is the key people think autophagy is so great and if they're young like yeah you can get away with five day fast not have a problem at all but you get to be 60 70 80 years old you're looking at deep trouble if you do that that extended Mm fast
1: yeah well when you are getting older then it's like a natural tendency to Uh, lose or you see like a reduction in growth hormone you see a reduction in being able to synthesize protein and uh, build tissue so in that case to compensate for that you just need uh, to increase your protein intake a little bit to have like a bigger bank of amino acids to pull from and uh, making sure that the stimulus for muscle hypertrophy and muscle growth is still there in the example of uh, lifting weights and doing resistance training so that's like a very important uh, part of uh, avoiding the uh, negative side effects of aging, such as like muscle loss. Because uh, if you lose your muscle, then you also become more uh, predisposed to all the other diseases like diabetes, you're predisposed to insulin resistance, even Alzheimer's I've seen, and uh, metabolic syndrome, etc. So uh, muscle mass is like a huge pension fund (laughs) for uh, healthy aging. Because with more muscle, you're uh, more insulin sensitive, you have bigger glycogen stores, you can get away with eating more calories. You can uh, you, you essentially have like a bigger uh, like protection against all different diseases, and uh, you also like don't need to uh, restrict yourself that much when it comes to fasting and calories because uh, like muscle, muscle mass is just helps to uh, live longer, and uh, they seen like one of the predictors of all cause mortality is amount of muscle mass, and that's that's being used more and more in uh, research and other researchers as well.
0: Yeah, and serum serum protein, those like total protein and albumin, also correlated with that too. Yeah, which is a reflection of the muscle mass. So, yeah. someone like you, a twenty-four four-hour eating window, is probably not a bad idea. But when you get to be closer to seventy, maybe six hours makes more sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah, like so, in, the, in in for, for, and that's why like a lower protein diet necessarily isn't going to be good because if you have a smaller eating window. Then you don't want to be eating low protein either, because uh, you may just experience <laughs> a loss of a loss of your own muscle tissue because of you don't consume enough protein. And when you combine it with a caloric stressor such as fasting, then you're just ending up with a net net negative effect in terms of that. So having like an adequate intake of protein and not worrying about it, uh, then that's like a much more much more sustainable strategy. Because when it comes to like hierarchy. Like a hierarchy of longevity in the context of uh, calorie restriction and intermittent fasting, then intermittent fasting and a lower eating frequency is definitely much more effective and much more useful than protein restriction, so to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. So why don't you discuss some of the protein recommendations based on grams per kilogram of body weight, based on age, and then give an example, like a hundred uh, fifty-pound male or seventy-kilogram male, and you know how much you would how that would be different for a 60 or 70 year old as opposed to a 30 or 40 year old
1: yeah well like the and RDA,
0: and especially if they're exercising like it because that cranks it up another level too
1: for sure well the rda for protein is like if i'm not mistaken it's like 0.4 grams per pound uh which is like really low and uh, it it's definitely not, not like optimal for um for the average person or like especially people who are exercising and especially people who are older as well. So I think definitely like a higher protein intake would be better, Uh, but there's also definitely like a point of diminishing returns after which you're not going to see any benefit and you're just like wasting the protein. So that upper limit tends to be, based on the research, somewhere around 0.8 to 1.2 grams per pound of lean body mass. And uh, that's, that's the point where most research is showing that there isn't any significant increase in the amount of lean muscle mass a person has so that's still uh,
0: that's, a lot of protein yeah I mean, that's that's
1: that's 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 a pretty pretty high amount of protein yeah it's so 150
0: uh, grams for most people
1: yeah so yeah uh, but,
0: but i yeah. mean bodybuilders take a lot more than that
1: yeah for sure so uh that's that's a higher protein intake but that's the upper limit as well so you can definitely get away with less like mm-hmm. on a keto on a ketogenic diet you can stick to like 0.6 grams of protein per pound of body weight and you'll you'll be fine. It also like varies a lot on your like physical activity, so to say. If you don't work out that often, then you don't need more protein either. And uh, like for instance, it's 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 definitely like a good idea to cycle the amounts of protein you're consuming. For instance, on like a rest day or on a fasting day, then you don't want to have uh, more protein because it's not going to be used uh, mm-hmm. for recovery. And you definitely maybe have you you would benefit more from increasing your protein. On the workout days, or when you're actually training, so yeah, usually between like 0.6 on the low end and uh, 0.8 to 1.0 grams per pound of body weight is the upper end, and somewhere okay. between, because there isn't like a magical amount of num- or magical amount that you need to stick to all the time. So that yeah. that's usually and, the range where you benefit from lean
0: uh, lean body mass. So if you're 20 yeah. percent body fat. Than you know, 80 percent of your total weight. So you just multiply your weight times 0.8. But then you also discuss, especially for someone like you, who only has a four-hour window. You, how can you squeeze in that much protein in four hours? You're then you're going to violate what another re- recommendation or common recommendation is, which is to not have more than 30 or 40 grams of protein at one meal. So you mm-hmm. do a good job of discussing that in the book also. So why don't you share your views with us on that?
1: Yeah, like the myth that your body can absorb only 30 grams of protein. It comes from this one study where it showed that you need only like 30 to 40 grams of protein to maximize muscle protein synthesis. So muscle protein synthesis is the phenomenon of uh, building muscle muscle tissue, uh, but it doesn't really tell you like how much protein you end up absorbing because the body is uh, very very uh, effective at self-regulating the rate of absorption uh, of those foods and especially protein. So even like in the gut. Uh, when you consume protein, then uh, there's this self-regulatory mechanism that uh, slows down the pro- protein absorption as to ensure that it's not going to waste away. And uh, like, for instance, if you do absorb only 30 pro- 30 grams of protein at once to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, and you do it once a day or two times a day, then it doesn't mean that you're going to end up losing muscle or it doesn't mean that you can't build muscle. It may be just a little bit slower. So the reason why these bodybuilders... Uh, eat six times a day is that they want to s- maintain this constant state of anabolism and they want to spike muscle protein synthesis all the time with those in- with-, with those very frequent uh, feedings. So in that case, like for most people who are do- listening to this podcast, then they're not like bodybuilders and they don't have the same goals as bodybuilders either. So they don't want to get huge <laughs> and jacked. So uh, they want to just maintain uh, lean muscle tissue and promote the growth. So you can definitely like still build muscle on a, like a one meal a day sitting, it's just that the body will slow down the rate of absorption for protein and uh, it's still going to like, I would, I would even imagine that if you eat like 120 grams of protein or something within one meal, then uh, although you uh, will absorb like the initial parts of the protein, I, I feel like the, uh, the overall uh, gradual response is gonna last for like several hours after eating so you still have like the amino acids circulating in the bloodstream for several hours after you consume the meal because like protein digests very slowly and you'll be you'll be actually staying in this uh like anabolic state for hours and hours afterwards
0: yeah and your actual personal testimony of this is is quite uh, interesting also and i i believe there's pictures in the book that show that if not it's on your website or one of your videos where you I had a picture of yourself before and then when you started implementing this mm. restricted eating window and uh the amount of muscle mass you gained by doing this which is somewhat counterintuitive because you would think you'd need to you know from the protein or the bodybuilding perspective you need to eat continuously to activate muscle muscle synthesis and mm-hmm. you know you despite that
1: yeah like I've I've uh, i haven't like built a, a huge amount of muscle with this i've built about maybe 10 to 15 pounds of lean muscle and I uh, haven't deliberately tried to bulk or I haven't deliberately increased my calories uh, a lot, so to say. So I've always stayed around like my maintenance calories. I've just focused on uh, progressive overload, so to say. I focused on getting stronger at the gym and uh, progressing that way. So the, your body, the, the main stimulus for muscle growth is still the training, so to say. It doesn't matter how much protein you eat. If you don't get the right stimulus and you don't get enough like recovery in the, in the form of sleep, then you're not going to build muscle anyway. So, yeah, I've, I've yeah. been focusing primarily on like, the training.
0: And, and th- that's why you, your book is so comprehensive, and I recommend most people, if you're interested in this topic, to definitely pick up a copy because it doesn't really have a nice chapter or a significant section of the book that's devoted to specific exercise training. And mm. unless a person is an exercise advocate, they probably have not been exposed to these types of approaches before. So uh, that's a good tool. But I'm also curious, and what are my new – passions and exercise. And I think something that you're familiar with too, at least I heard you were and been doing it is this Katsu training. That's K-A-A-T-S-U developed mm-hmm. by a, a Japanese researcher about 50 years ago, was 73. And he looks buffed like he's about 40 now. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty amazing because it essentially is blood flow restriction training where you've got these bands around your upper arms or upper legs, not at the same mm-hmm. time. And you do this exercise which is typically about 60 to 70 percent less than your one max rep, rep one rep max rep rep <laughs> one whatever it is and so it's a pretty light weight it's, it's difficult to injure yourself but you're doing it so frequently instead of doing 10 reps you do like 30 and then 20 and then 15 mm-hmm. and it just causes this enormous flux of metabolic changes, like it increases local levels of lactate, which secondarily increases growth hormone, and and VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, and nitric oxide. And I don't know if you knew this one too, but there's a a protein called myostatin, and what myostatin does is it actually inhibits muscle growth. Mm -hmm. So this katsu actually is a myostatin inhibitor, it lowers myostatin levels by 50%, which is extraordinary. So I'm wondering uh, if, I know you've played with it before, but I'm wondering if you have any specific views on katsu.
1: Yeah, I've uh, tried the katsu bands at the Bulletproof Conference and uh, the Biohacker Summit last year as well. So I I definitely, I would see like a huge application for uh, everyone to kind of try it. And even if they don't get the katsu bands, then some form of like blood flow restriction is Mm -hmm. uh, also like very effective. I I do them like uh, a few times a week. On like rest days when I'm not trying to do like a heavy workout, but I'm still trying to promote a recovery. So yeah, with the, with the resistance r- blood flow restriction bands, you can't go like very heavy, but uh, you you mimic the kind of you, like I said vasodilation and uh, nitric oxide release, etc. So that's gonna just help to direct more blood into the muscles, and uh, it's gonna promote more uh, tissue recovery, and especially directing more blood into the uh, like these more vulnerable regions, like the tendons and ligaments, et cetera. And also I would imagine that's you know, beneficial for like cardiovascular health as well, just because of the- Oh, absolutely,
0: muscle. absolutely. And, and interestingly, it increases both the type one and type two muscle fibers because it exhausts them completely because mm-hmm. if, if you have a relatively anoxic or lack of oxygen environment. And as a result, you get pretty massive muscle hypertrophy, which is yeah. like shocking. I mean, yeah. beyond anything you'd anticipate. I mean, sometimes when I do it, I, my, my biceps get so big, I get, it's hard to shave because they're so swollen. It's <laughs> yeah. crazy. It becomes a problem,
1: man. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, but I'm wondering, you know, re- because you have a really deep appreciation of the metabolic molecular biology on that. And it would seem to me, because you're dealing with such a lower weight and you're getting all these magnificent metabolic benefits, that that's something you can do pretty regularly. And- and maybe even every day and that the need for the recovery in that type of workout is far less than your typical high intensity full-on heavy weight training Mm -hmm. session Mm
1: -hmm. well yeah like the you can definitely do them more often than uh, heavy resistance training and uh like it, it will be like very something you can add into like rest days as well as I wouldn't know like depends on like on the person and what kind of uh, training routine they have and how often they can do it. But for the average person, they can definitely use it quite often and quite frequently. I I think it's going to be you wouldn't like probably gain the same benefits as with like heavy resistance training because there still needs to be like some aspects of intensity there to like you know reach the top end of uh, physique development but like for most people they can they can still like be healthy and uh, get yeah. lean get lean and uh, get 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 a six pack and etc with with those things
0: yeah yeah so but again we probably would not recommend that on a fasting day because you're <laughs> you're <laughs> conflicting goals there you don't want to activate mm-hmm. autophagy and anabolism the same day not a good idea
1: sure sure
0: so uh what yeah, you, know, you what's your current passion and what are what are you uh really diving deep into nowadays?
1: Uh well uh, I am still actively, you know, all the time reading about the tafaji and fasting and paying attention to like what what's what research is coming out there. Uh but I also like uh doing more more like different courses uh, on these topics like uh, I have like a video course on the same topic as in the book like fasting and metabolic autophagy but also like creating a course about uh, sleep optimization because I think that's another one of those critical things like virtually all people would benefit from uh, like aside from time received eating and yeah like there's a lot of like negative side effects to sleep deprivation and even like things like autophagy and growth hormone you may not get those effects if your sleep quality sucks so to say so yeah, i yeah. think like sleep is actually like more important than fasting it's just that uh, most people find it easier to kind of start off with fasting but uh, optimally would and everyone should focus a lot on like making sure that they get quality sleep
0: yeah well we'll talk about that in a moment but i just want to get back to this time restricted eating again and uh, from my view now when i'm giving presentations i have to condense it down to just a few minutes or it's a short interview, you know, I'm doing a news, news show or something, the, the key point I want people to understand is probably the most important thing you can do is to restrict your, your eating window. I mean, yeah. maybe even more important than looking at the quality of your calories, that's, that's important, yeah. of, all, of course, but if you're still, I mean, you can have the best quality food in the world, but if you're eating for 16 hours, you're, you're sabotaging yourself. So would you agree that that, from your perspective, maybe the most important strategy?
1: Yeah. When it, well, when it comes to nutrition, yeah, definitely. Like uh, like for instance, like we'd already talked in the, even the beginning of this podcast that you can mimic the benefits of caloric restriction without having to restrict your calories as long as you do some form of intermittent fasting. So time received eating is uh, like very beneficial. And uh, it's also uh, like in, when when I interviewed you, you on my podcast and you mentioned that it's something that. Almost like humans are designed to be eating mm-hmm. like, uh, with, within a small, smaller time frame. And I totally agree. And even like the research of Sachin Panda is also showing that I think that there is like, this study on the mice where they fed these two groups of mice the same amount of calories, but if those mice were eating within a smaller time frame, they didn't gain weight so the diet was like very obesogenic, like processed yeah, food, was, et cetera. But yeah, because very- they were eating within a time, smaller time frame, they didn't get obese and it didn't develop like metabolic syndrome, etc. cetera. So yeah, the, just the effect of confinement and the smaller eating frequency just prevents those benefits from taking effect. And I would imagine the benefits are because of like increased autophagy during the fast state.
0: Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And to me that I would agree, uh, concur with your re- uh, example of sachin Panda's research. That's one of the most powerful Uh, illustrations of the benefits of restricting the eating window. I mean, if it does that to rats, what's it going to do to us? I mean, obviously it's not a perfect model, but I mean, there's a good likelihood that there's not going to be any downsides to it. So with that, why don't you uh, review some of your top recommendations for sleep?
1: Um, Well, based on my own experience, I can say that uh, definitely blocking our blue light is uh huge like i've seen i've seen like up to 10 to 15 percent increase in my deep sleep just because of blocking out blue light and i saw that especially when i got my first pair of blue blockers and i measured it with my o-ring so blue blue light is huge and uh yeah definitely making sure that you don't have like excess uh let's say junk light in the evening whether that be from a smartphone or um or like a laptop screen, or like the uh, whatever, maybe TV or or something. So yeah, that's that's one of the best ones. Uh, then the second one would be probably to not eat anything before bed, at least for like three to four hours, and you know five to six hours, et cetera. Like I've when I've when I'm doing like longer fasts, you know over 24 hours, then I always sleep like a baby, <laughs> just because uh, there's not much you know food to digest, and it kind of helps my body to repair itself better. And uh, yeah, I think if you eat like very close to bedtime, then you're just going to have some.
0: uh, How does your aura score go up when you're uh, fasting? Does it go up considerably?
1: Um, It does go somewhat higher. Like uh, it may also be that when I'm fasting, then I'll just sleep longer as well uh, because I'm taking it slower. But uh, usually I would say maybe about, I would get get maybe like 10% more deep sleep or something or, or REM sleep either, either or. Uh, but yeah, I think. Uh, Wait, you what's your like,
0: what's your record readiness score? Have you hit a hundred?
1: No, no. I usually stay around like. Uh, well, my readiness is about like 80 to 90, but my sleep is uh, the, the a good night's sleep is like maybe 93 or something, and a bad night's sleep would be like 77 or some somewhere, and I'll okay. stay around there.
0: Okay. Well, good. Because
1: I I don't think like with the ordering the the score is kind of limited by the total right. amount of hours as well, so to say. Although I'll be getting like three hours of REM plus deep sleep, uh, I'll still get a, I'll, I'll get, I'll get a lower score just because of not sleeping that long, so to say. Even I'll, I'll be, if I get like three hours of deep sleep uh, within like six hours of total sleep time, then it's, the ring is going to give me like a smaller score. Whereas in reality, like I don't really care about the light sleep sort of say, (laughs) I just want to, yeah, I
0: don't think your body does either. I think that's where their algorithm might be a bit flawed. So, I mean, you're getting a total of three hours of REM and deep sleep combined or there's
1: yeah. Combined. Yeah.
0: Okay. So that's, that's pretty healthy level. So, uh, but six hours, you know, if you, if you listen to Matthew Walker's research in in his book, uh, he might, he would suggest that you need closer to eight. And I think that's where they're basing most of their algorithms
1: on. Yeah. On, on most nights I am like, uh, seven, seven to eight. So the six hours isn't like a consistent thing. It's only like for when I'm not working out, then I'll need less sleep as well. And then on those days I may get like six, but, uh, usually in most cases I'm still working out and, uh, I'm getting like seven to eight.
0: Okay. So do you, you don't wake up with an alarm clock then?
1: no no it's like a natural uh circadian rhythm synchronizer so to say i'll just uh wake up whenever i feel like it and usually it's somewhere like between 6 and 7 a.m so it's like a perfect to kind of get exposure to the natural sunlight as well to uh, synchronize the uh, circadian rhythm
0: yeah i'm not sure that you mentioned this in the book i don't think you did but there's an an other benefit the metabolic benefit of not eating at least three to four hours before you go to bed. And you're one of the rare authors that actually recommend four, at least four hours. And I think you do, you and I both do it six or more hours before you go to bed. So, and that is when you're eating before you go to sleep, you're not gonna burn that energy. So your body has to store it because it can't mm-hmm. like pee it out or you can't excrete it through your stools. You have to do something with it metabolically. So the way mm-hmm. you store energy is you make fat. And the process of creating fat requires a specific coenzyme, and actually an NAD plus cousin called NADPH. Uh, Really important, the battery of your cell, and it's important for recharging your antioxidants. So if you're consuming NADPH to make fats while you're sleeping, your NADPH levels decline, and your ability to neutralize oxidative stress and free radicals is radically diminished. So, and Mm -hmm. and actually detox too, because you need NADPH for your detox system. So that's a a, a not well appreciated artifact of, or benefit of not eating at least four hours before you go to bed.
1: Yeah. I actually learned that uh, from you as well. Like you mentioned that to me, that the NADPH and yeah, like you, the detox and glutathione uh, synthesis is also like dependent upon it. So if you feel, if you feel like tired and exhausted in the morning, then chances are that you're just in a food coma and uh, you haven't recovered.
0: (laughs) And, you know, Sachin Panda is another brilliant guy. He did independent research. And actually, I don't know that anyone else has done this and actually determined in a large group of people through this app he developed called My My Food or My Circadian Clock or one of these apps that he has where he had thousands of people take pictures of the food and the time they ate it. So Mm he collected this large database, analyzed it, and found that 90% of people are eating more than 12 hours a day. 90%. So you know got half of the people eating 16 hours a day. Yeah. Which crazy. is all day long. This is this is not known. This is not applied. You know, it's just crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like people like although they may skip breakfast, but they still put like milk into the coffee or, or they'll have a few almonds in the evening, that 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 still counts as eating and uh, still keeps them in this fit state all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's just it is really one of the, the simplest basic strategies that you can use to radically improve your health. And it really doesn't cost you anything. In fact, most likely it will save you money because you're, yeah, it increases exactly. the amount of food that you're eating, sort of sort of, as an artifact. I mean, you could still overeat in calories, it's just harder to do when you have a smaller restricted eating window. Yeah, and, exactly. and speaking of calories, what, what is your general recommendation for calories? You'd think that the, the, the typical uh, RDAs for calories based on height, weight, uh, in age are sufficient or do you have any modification to that uh,
1: I think the kind of best way to go about it is to just track uh, initially and uh, just look at how your body responds to it because uh, you know what's what's the right amount of calories for you for someone else is gonna be different for that's what, what required for me so you just have to look at okay how many calories am I eating and it's a good idea to go through this sh- short period of you know tracking everything And paying attention to uh, what what you put in your mouth, like all the macros and percentages, just so you could get like a more intuitive knowledge about uh, what your body needs. And then, you know, either adjust it based upon the requirements, so to say, if you're trying to lose fat, then reduce your calories a little bit, but not too much uh, and do it consistently. Or if you're trying to build muscle, then increase it a little bit again, but not too much, because you know no. there's a, there's, a, there's a certain threshold after which you're not like building muscle; you're just like promoting fat gain.
0: Yeah, I got a little insight from your book with the or motivation to actually lower the amount of macadamia nuts. I w- I'm pretty convinced I was overeating them. I was having maybe half a pound a day of macadamia <laughs> nuts, which is quite a bit. And uh, so I cut those down. Uh, reduce my, cause that's a massive source of calories. That was like 2000 calories a day. And and part of the justification for that was to try to gain more lean muscle mass. But I I thought it would be better to lower that and increase the protein, high quality proteins like eggs. I'm up to six eggs a day now. Hmm. And uh, which I think is probably one of the best value. I mean, high quality, a pasture raised Hmm. organic egg. Yeah. You know, obviously not the other, but that's. Yeah, like I think is.
1: I think yeah, like eggs are the number one kind okay, of like natural uh, whole food protein source yeah. because they have like all the amino acids as well as like leucine, which will uh, trigger mTOR and uh, that's gonna like promote uh, muscle protein synthesis and muscle growth.
0: And you know what else it has? It has phosphatidylcholine. It's the largest oh, yeah. dietary source of PC, nice. which is unbelievable. It's like 125 milligrams per egg, and you need about for men about a half a gram, 500 milligrams a day. And most people are not getting that. And that's an absolutely essential requirement to build healthy cell membranes Mm -hmm. and uh, eggs are the best source of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So any other pearls of wisdom, wait, pearls of wisdom. And then uh, I'll summarize uh, some of this, some of at least my suggestions for people, how to uh, incorporate and tell us, tell us a bit more about your YouTube channel too.
1: Uh, Well, yeah, I think, uh, to kind of um, my conclusion would be that some form of time restricted eating and intermittent fasting is definitely one of the most important or mo- mo- most effective ways of promoting healthy aging and longevity as well as improving body composition. So uh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't worry about uh, restricting your protein, etc. If you're doing some form of fasting, because you're already suppressing the anabolic pathways related to protein overconsumption while you're in a fast state. So you don't have to worry about it because you're doing it more uh, diligently and you're getting like a bigger effect from that.
0: Oh, great. And uh, I, I'm, I, if you are, enjoy this topic as much as I do, then I'm sure you enjoy this interview. And if you have, then you'll absolutely love and be delighted by Sim's regular YouTube videos. They come out a few times a week and they're really entertaining. They're not very long, <laughs> maybe five, just about five minutes is the average. And, uh, lots of good pearls of wisdom interjected with entertaining entertainments <laughs> and really good, uh, uh, video production skills. So it's, right. it's, it's fun to watch. And I think you really hit the target there because, <laughs> you know, most of us have such a short attention spans that they, that you need those little bit of digestions. And so t- tell us a bit more about that and then the video courses and your book that you offer.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, If anyone wants to, you know, actually learn everything we talked about here in like more closer detail than the book that we discussed is uh, Metabolic Autophagy. You can get it on uh, Amazon and you can also get like the audio version from uh, my website, Seamland.com. And on on the website, I have like many different articles about all these things as well. Autophagy, intermittent fasting, ketosis and uh, biohacking. But uh, like for the most kind of active social media platform for me is uh, YouTube it's Seamland there as well. And, uh, yeah, Instagram is also Seamland.
0: Okay, great. Seamland.com. I I definitely subscribe to your channel and uh, enjoy your videos. It's, uh, I I mean, it's so, because this, for most people, this is really one of the summaries of your book. This is a confusing topic. Biochemistry is not easy to understand, but you do a really good job of simplifying it. And it's just a, a great resource to have if you really want to go deep on this, I think you'd be out of your mind not to get this <laughs> book. If you, if you really have been intrigued with this information, then you're definitely going to want to pick up a copy of Metabolic Atop, which is one of the best books I've read in a while. Right. Uh, and I really think it complements what I've written and, and in many ways goes into much greater detail about very important topics that I just didn't have the space to go into. So uh, yeah, congratulations on putting that together.
1: Well, thanks. And uh, I'm, I'm honored <laughs> by your uh, appreciation.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, you know, I'd like to recognize good work and you certainly did a good job. So uh, and I know you'll be doing a lot more good work, too, because, you know, you've got the skill set. I mean, sir, your brain is working well because you're doing you're providing it with the resources, biological resources to be optimized. And we can all do this. We can all replicate that. And, and, you're, and you're absolutely applying your passion. So it's a, it's a prescription for success, for sure. And uh, it's great to see that when it happens. And you're certainly a good example. So and an inspiration for others who want to follow in your path.
1: Yeah, it's, that's one of the goals as well, to kind of lead by example and uh, oh, yeah. show that it's, that it's possible.
0: Yeah, well, you're doing a good job of it. So keep up the good Thanks. work. All right.